Welcome to another Macquarie Life Church podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. The, the trust and the love of walking with God is just so strong. I put the, the image of Everest up there because I think human tendency is to, if something big's coming up, you sort of look ahead and go, oh my goodness, how am I ever going to get there? And what I've learned on my journey and the best way to stay the course is sometimes to turn around and look back and see how far you've come already. And sometimes we can, there's, there's Everest and there's four camps and then you hit the summit and you can be at camp four thinking, oh my goodness, how am I going to get up there? If you stop and take time to look back and see where God has been faithful and where he's come through again and again and again, you'll see he got me past base camp, camp one. I remember that miracle at camp two. I remember when I asked him about camp three and he came through for me. And now I'm at camp four. The summit's not that far away. I trust him. I just need to keep work, walking forward. Um, and the verse that has always stuck with me is from Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And every step, looking forward and remembering all the triumphs backwards are part of that. That's great, Fraser. That really is a bit of like, not to be corny, but the song of ascent, as we sang before, just... Yeah. That was just a coincidence, Joe. <laughs> As it happens in church, hey. <laughs> so Donna, same question to you. What have been some keys for you in staying the course and loving God consistently over the years? Well, I can't say five decades, but I can say four decades. I know some of you can't hardly imagine that, can you? You can't imagine that age, but I used to be as old as you once. Okay, so unbelievably time just flies by and and you know days turn into weeks and weeks turn into months months turn into years and the next thing you know you do you do look back and you have a testimony of God's faithfulness so no one can tell me God's not real (laughs) I encountered him when I was 11 I'm going why am I getting emotional sorry guys um It wasn't just, so I did have Christian parents, but they weren't there when I committed my life, when I walked out the front of a little church and gave my heart to God. But I had an encounter with God that night. That Look, I'm living it right now in front of you all these years later. And in that moment, I knew that he knew everything about me, which included the sexual abuse I'd been in, been through, yet his love for me, was so strong. In that moment when I received his forgiveness for my life and that love came into my heart, I felt an injection of power. I, I can't, I, it changed my life. I, he gave me courage. So I had an injection of courage from that moment on. That abuse never happened to me again. He helped me remove myself from those situations where that was happening. And he gave me confidence to do my teenage years, which was incredible when I look back. I look at other people who struggle with the same things as me without God's help. So no one can tell me he's not real. But that wasn't just, the, that's not the only reason. It's because it's sort of going to go into point and question two, is I did think things through. I, I needed to know that it was real and I wanted my beliefs not to just be um, 
you know, fairyland. I wanted them to be a deep conviction and that's how I've lived my life. Some other things that I look back now and think have really helped me was I married a man who had the same convictions as me. Um, I don't know, you know, you don't know what the future is, but I don't know where I'd be now if I didn't maybe have that um, same um, you know, person next to me who loved God as much as me and had the same convictions. And so one thing for us has been that we've always, surrounded, we've always been in church and we've surrounded ourselves with um, awesome people. Uh, so we had a, I think that helped. We actually really enjoyed our life as Christians. Um, so that's been really key for me is to actually enjoy my life uh, and love my life. Um, so, yeah, that's been, been really... I'm just seeing if there's anything here. Um, the last thing I would say is, as I'm getting older, um, an increasingly awareness of our mortality <laughs> as we get older, doesn't, it makes me lean into God more, you know. I've watched some people very close to me, you know, leave this earth and to see the courage that they have done that with, with their faith in God, has just emboldened me to just get stronger and stronger as the years go by um, and to not, yeah, not step back at all. Yeah. Excellent. That's beautiful. And just on behalf of us, thank you to both of you for showing us how to do the journey so beautifully. As Christians that are further on in the journey than the rest of us um, it's inspiring to see how you do life and your preaching from your actions is even more impactful than your preaching from the platform. So thank you for that. Just sort of something else, Joe. Mm, yeah, go okay. for it. I, <laughs> I, had an, I had actually, so I had an encounter with God that was very powerful, but also had an encounter with a demonic presence. So that also uh, helped me form a great foundation for my faith in God because no one could tell me the spirit world was not real. Um, so that also emboldened me to, um, there was no question. So I had the encounter with God. There was no question for me about the, the love in that moment was unbelievable. But there was also no question for me in the other about what evil was like. And so that emboldened me to go further after God. Mm. Wow, that's good. Um, you mentioned before about how you like to think things through, and that was a big part of your journey. So that brings us to our second question for you, Donna. Um, can you speak to the, to the topic or to the conversation of questioning, you know, your personal faith and things the church teaches you, um, and comment on the balance between, you know, the healthy searching and solidifying of your beliefs, but also the danger um, of drifting too far during that search? Yes. Um, so, yeah, question your faith. <laughs> You've got to have questions. Um, you know when you're at school and you don't quite get something and you want to put your hand up and ask a question? Who are those people who actually puts their hand up and ask questions? <laughs> and you hope you'll have a teacher that actually likes you to ask questions. Because if you ask that question and they answer it, that information will go, you know, you will gra you'll grasp it. And the, you need to be able to ask questions, not just of, the, you know, of God and of your faith and of your Bible. You know, you have a brain. Hello, you have a brain. Your brain has 200 billion neurons. Now, let me put that in perspective. There's 7.7 .7 billion people on the earth today. That your brain has, we said, now I've got a maths, you know, 
expert next to me, we said so roughly around 30 times more than the people on the earth today is the how many neurons you have in your brain. And you have, let me get this right, hundreds of trillions of connections in your brain. So that is, let me put that in perspective for you. You know, we're part of the Milky Way. And, you know, you look up sometimes, and, you know, I know we're in the Milky Way, but we're also part of the Milky Way. And you have more connections in your brain than all of the stars in the Milky Way. You have a good brain. God made you well, okay? And it's, he's given it to us for a reason, to think things through. And you can, you know, you can, um, by your mind and your thinking now, we know that it shapes who we are. And, and we can actually influence even our brain by our thoughts and our mind. So I believe God wants us to think things through and it's really good to question things and, and think things through um, and activate our brain and do that. Um, we, I know that the basis for Christian belief is in the Bible. So um, any Bible-believing congregation will actually encourage you to check what you're believing, check what you say. You'll often see a lot of us, especially us oldies, I mean, you do it on your phone, but we might write down a Bible reference or take some notes while the service is happening. Now, that's a learnt behaviour because often over years, if you saw my notebook, you might see a question mark <laughs> and a Bible reference. And that means I'm not sure about what they just said and I want to go home and read it for myself. And that's what I love about Christianity, because that's what the Bible says, encourages us to go home and check it out for yourself and scrutinise it and, and read it for yourself. Um, and so I can't encourage you enough to do that, answer, have some questions and get that happening in your, in your mind and going back to the Bible. You know, the thing I also love about Christianity is there's only one head of our church and that's Jesus Christ. Yes, you have great influential leaders, but Christ is the head of the church. And so you don't ever want to elevate a person uh, into that place, whether they be a great guru or a teacher or whatever. You never elevate a person into that place. Christ is that head and his word stands and that's where your solid foundation comes from. It's okay to listen to people's ideas and things, but it also has to check out with what we have in Scripture. Listen to what um, Paul said to the Galatians. Some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. So he's saying there's a bit of danger there when we go off track. The great thing is we have a Bible. We can all get back on track. Um, so I would say just in my searching, Joe, just be aware of a thing like, oh, secret knowledge, something new that no one's ever thought of before. The Bible's been around for 2,000 years and it probably is not new revelation. It could be new revelation to you, okay? And I can remember when I had revelations of things in God, like the revelation of grace, I thought it was so new to me. My, the eyes came on, but it wasn't new knowledge. And so don't elevate knowledge or secret knowledge. Or So now everyone else has been doing it wrong and then all of a sudden you've, you've got this new awareness um, that's not how it works. <laughs> um, that's when we start getting a little bit off track, when we do things like that. So I would say, yeah, read it for yourself. 
ask questions. Um, one tiny little thing more about questioning, I would say, I find a lot of people, it's not really questioning whether God is real or not. They've done their thinking through that and, um, you know, they believe in God. But the questioning really comes around uh, almost like, is it relating to me in my, my life? Um, it's like around disappointment with how their life's worked out. And sometimes I've realised it's their theology or the way they think about God is not quite Bible-based. It's sort of like they think God is outside of their life, um, sort of like um, a PA, you know, a really good PA organising their life or that the, it's sort of like a genie that God's like a genie that you can pray and ask for things and he may or may not give you the um, thing. You know, you can get your Bible out, you know, and you're doing this and asking for things and hoping God. Uh, it's not like that. He lives in you. He, he, he lives in you and he's working with you toward things, you know, and he's shaping who you are so that you can make choices you know, you can't fight for your freedom in one hand and then want to give that, make God the genie in another hand. He's working with you on that. He wants you to activate your choice. Christianity only works if it's activated by choice in your life. So he's working with you and in you. And so a better question to say is when you feel like, you know, you've asked God for something and it's just not appearing, is God, is there anything in me that you want to, that you need to work on to work towards that, that we can work on that together. Yeah. Good, Donna. Thank you. Fraser, another question that um, I think has been asked for centuries, but it's as important today as it was back then. Can we lose our salvation? Okay, that is an important one. I actually trundled through 101 verses just so I could make sure that um, I've, I've got it right. And I want to say that the promise of salvation, what Jesus has done on the cross, is absolutely rock solid. But it's contingent on, on us as well. We have to do something as well. But I want to start by saying, yes, you can lose your salvation, but it's not like losing your car keys. You're not going to walk out of here and go, my goodness, how do I get in the car? Oop, I've lost my salvation as well it's not a moment so if you've lived the um, you can't live a perfect life but if you've been a very good Christian and you you walk out on the road and look to the right and the bus comes and just before it hits you you let out an expletive shivers and the bus hits you that's not the end of it. Oh, my goodness, I led a, a fantastic life and I just blew it at the end. It's not like that. Loss of salvation is a process. It's an ongoing and deliberate um, step of disobedience, a movement further and further and further away from God. It won't sneak up on you. Um, we, we do need to work on it, but you'll be quite aware of it. It won't take you by surprise just wanted to read a few verses that, that point out what we need to do, what is required of us. Uh, these are up here. I'll get to my slide in a moment. Um, just some very quick verses, and I'll emphasize the point that I'm trying to make. 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 12. The saying is trustworthy. 
For if we have died with him, we also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Romans 11.22 Note when the kindness, note that then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity t- towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise you'll be cut off. Matthew 24.13 But the one who endures to the end will be saved. 1 Corinthians 15.1-2 Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So all those points, if we endure, provided you continue, who endures to the end, if you hold fast to the word, all say the salvation is there, but you need to keep continuing. You need to keep going on. You can't, once saved, just lead the life that you want to or return to the former life thinking that, you know, you've got the insurance plan in place. But what does it mean to endure? What does it mean to hold fast and continue? And I think the answer comes in Hebrews 10. First, I want to look at Hebrews 10, 26 to 27. This is the bad news. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. That's the bad news. But before those verses, Hebrews unpacks really well what it means to endure and to continue. I'm going to go back to verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us, here it comes, draw near to God with a sincere heart. And with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. We keep saying it. We encourage others in it. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. That's a very important one. How can we encourage other people to continue in their race? Because that will help us in our own. And I love this next bit. Not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. And that's exactly what we're doing here. You're here, you're at church, we're in community, we're in family. We're not in the habit. Um, we're not giving up on meeting together. So vital for our Christian faith to be hot coals amongst other hot coals and that's where we get our heat and that's how we stay on fire for God, coming regularly to church, drawing near to him 
hanging on to the hope, meeting together, encouraging one another. That's how we get through. That's how we endure to the end. And we receive that promise. That's great. Thanks, Fraser. Now, as wonderful Leone is providing some beautiful atmosphere for us, we'll quickly get through the last couple of questions. Um, so, Donna, can you comment on the argument that the Bible contradicts itself? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just looking for my page. Hang on a sec. Um, okay, over here. Um, when you come across what seems like a contradiction in the Bible, so I'm assuming now, first of all, we've made a, um, a decision to believe the authority of the Bible. Now, if you're still questioning that, I do have to say, maybe you could listen to the podcast from last week because I did go into that in more detail there. But um, once you've settled that, then, um, and you are reading your Bible, sometimes you may come across what seems like contradictions. Um, and when there are con- what seems like contradictions, it's good for you to remember that the Bible was written over a period of a 1,500-year time frame. So 66 books written by 44 different authors over a period of 1,500 years, you know, written on three different continents in three different languages. And God has brought all that together. And so for me, when I come across what seems like a contradiction, that's usually an indication that I need to have a look at the context in which that verse or that passage was written. So for instance, I brought up a funny one that I uh, found or grew up with actually last week was they... so. With God, okay, in the Bible, you look for a where there is a consistent witness on something from beginning to end, that stands. So you look for a consistent witness. Say, for instance, God, lying is never, never um, a good thing in the Bible, so it's always wrong. So dis, um, dishonesty is always wrong. Kindness is always good in the Bible from beginning to end. Things like that is what I'm saying. Um, but other things that may be, be inconsistent are usually more to do with culture and the cultural things. So, for instance, um, if you were reading in Corinthians, it, it says a funny thing about long hair being wrong for a boy to have long hair. And similarly, that it was wrong for a girl to have short hair and that you had to have your hair covered in church. But then, because I'm a good little Bible scholar, and I've read my Bible from beginning to end, I know that in Leviticus it actually says that the men should not cut their hair. So can you see that there's an inconsistency there? So what I need to do is look at the context in which that was written. And a little bit of digging actually brings a lot of light to things like that. And you'll find that, yes, it was a culturally relevant thing. Does hair mean anything to us now? If someone has long hair, does it mean anything? If someone has short hair, does it mean anything? If someone has dreadlocks, does it mean anything? Not necessarily anymore. Hair doesn't really have the meaning that it had back then. And really what the underlying message is, one of respect. And um, we haven't really got time to go into too much detail. But say, for instance, they might feel like there's a contradiction to say that is God a God of peace, but he also seems to be a God of war. 
you know, someone might bring up the fact that in Exodus, when the uh, Israelites were escaping Egypt um, and they went through the Red Sea, then when the Egyptians came, God was the, God let the water come back and they were all killed. He's got a God of war where we know that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Does, is that a contradiction? So that's when you've got to actually have a look at the whole story. And, um, when, and you realise that sometimes the, the uh, purpose of war is to bring about peace. And if we look at the whole story of the Bible, we'll see that God was actually fighting not just for... The, uh, for the Israelites to come out of oppression of the Egyptians and give them plenty of warning in doing that to release them. But also he's been fighting against sin and death. <laughs> you know, from the start, his plan was to fight against sin and death. And Jesus definitely um, brought about that. Um, and it says that he disarmed all the powers and authority, triumphing over them on the cross. And so they're warring terms, but he brought about peace okay that was to bring about peace so if you look at the context and you look at the overall picture you can see that yes both of those statements actually uh, can be true and not really contradict each other does that make sense yeah, joe that's good to do you want me to say any more? Well, I think just because we're a little bit short <laughs> yes, for time, okay. we might move on. That was very good. Thank you. We might move on to the final question for Fraser. So um, tolerance is the latest byword, was the word used for the question, but it mean, just means it's the latest sort of key word in society today. And it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. What was Jesus tolerant of and what wasn't he tolerant of? I think Jesus was one of the most tolerant, broad-minded people you just had to see his interaction with with the pharisees he was also intolerant of a lot of things and i think the distinction needs to be made the world needs to be more tolerant in the sense that even just different warring factions and countries need to come together at, um, at the conference table in the spirit of give and take i think the world needs to be more tolerant probably the church needs to be more intolerant in certain areas. Um, tolerance has become a word, it's a really good word, but we've got to make sure we're applying it to the right setting. And often when we apply it to the church setting, setting we're talking about um, watering down our, our faith or looking for a common denominator that will make everybody happy. When we talk about intolerance, there's a lot of intolerance that takes place. I'm a teacher, <clears throat> science is intolerant particularly water. Water will always freeze at zero degrees. It will always boil at 100 degrees. I don't know why it can't be more broad-minded and try and do something at different temperatures. It's always fixed and locked in, completely intolerant. I also teach maths, and for 25, 30 years as a teacher, 2 plus 3 is equal to 5. What about the other numbers? Why can't we include them as, as well? It, it just doesn't work. I've got some friends out of Newcastle, and when they come to stay, they say, how do we get to Newcastle, Fraser? And I say, well, you can use any road you want to. Whatever makes you feel good, be true to yourself. They never turn up. It works every time. There's really only one way that they can take it. And when it comes to travel advice, I go to Jesus because he travelled all the way from heaven to earth and then he turned around and made his way back again and successfully reached his destination. 
And he says this, this is his travel advice, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. And the the wide gate uh, basically is really popular, and it's easy and it's and it's careless and it ends up in a place where we don't want to go Um, I think Jesus would function as an intolerant pilot during a storm and with all the lightning flashing and everything going on he'd be going right we've got to go left we've got to go around this one we've got to avoid that lightning zigzag to the right up 30,000 feet 20,000 feet can't we just go another way this is the way we're going to come through this and that path has to be intolerant because I want to get you to the other side Christ was intolerant of our lost position he was so intolerant that we would remain in a sinful state he got off the throne and he came down here he became a human and he died a horrible death he's intolerant for our situation um, it's, it's a little bit like you know, he says you can't serve two masters. It's a little bit like if the Newcastle Knights were um, playing the, the Rabbitohs and you just want people to be broad-minded and intolerant. So you put your Rabbitohs jumper on and you, you go and sit with, um, with the other team. I've forgotten who they are already. Not a, no. not a footballer. The Knights. And you go, go the Bunnies. You're going to get hammered. And so you put your Knights jersey on, go and sit with the Bunnies. And you go, go the Knights. You'll get hammered again. It just doesn't work. Jesus says you can't serve the two masters. He was intolerant towards the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. He's intolerant towards selfishness. And I've got that verse up there from Luke 9.23. And I think this hits a, a point with society at the, at the moment. Because it's about me. It's, it's what I want to do. It's what make me, makes me feel good. It's just the way I'm made. I want to be true to myself. Jesus says this, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. You have to deny those things and follow the roadmap that Jesus has given you, the boundaries which lead to life. And outside those boundaries are just death. As I said, Jesus was intolerant towards sin, the sin that was in us. And this is another point of confusion, I think, with society. He's not intolerant towards people. He's intolerant towards the sin attached to people. And it really comes out well in John when um, he's speaking to the the woman who's um, been discovered in adultery. And remember, she's brought out and they're getting ready to stone her. And Jesus says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And they all disappear. And he says to her, uh, where are the ones who condemn you? And Jesus, they've, they've gone. And he says this, and I think it's so prov- profound. Neither do I condemn you. I don't condemn you for what you've done. But go and sin no more. Because I condemn the evil, um, sinful acts that you were doing. Separate yourself from them. The condemnation is not for you. It's for that. And when he says, I don't condemn you, that doesn't mean you can keep all the baggage and the former life and all that stuff. There's a separation of those things. He was so intolerant of sin, as we know, that he died that cruel death on the cross. 
Yeah, that was fantastic, Fraser. Very good. And that brings us to the end of our questions. So big round of applause for Donna and Fraser. Thank you so much um, for all of that. Thank you for listening. We hope you have enjoyed this message. For more information, please visit macroylifechurch.com.au.